Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all gathered on the Lord's Day, and um, I invite you to turn with me to your, in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14 this morning, um, a bit different from what is in your bulletin. Uh, Aaron, uh, our brother, was supposed to be preaching this morning and uh, fell sick and thought he would be better in time, and it uh, turns out that the Lord had other things in mind, so we can be praying for Aaron, but this morning... I want us to turn to the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And as we come uh, to this time of year, uh, a week from today in which we will give special a focus, uh, focus to the victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in which we will focus on His conquering the grave and death and hell in our place we always need to keep that core tenet of the Christian faith, the resurrection, connected to the death which Christ died. Because the resurrection from the dead is glorious precisely because of what Christ emerged victorious from. And so this morning I want us to focus and consider something of the agonies of soul that the Lord Jesus anticipated in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to the crucifixion. And so let's read Mark 14, verses 42, or excuse me, 32 through 42. Let us hear the word of God. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See My betrayer is at hand. Amen. Let us unite our hearts and pray and ask God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to Your Word this morning with humble hearts. We come to this passage realizing that we cannot even begin to comprehend 
the depths of the glories, the depths of the agonies that are being described here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, we come as those who stand on holy ground, recognizing that this is, in a very real sense, one of the holy of holies in your word, in which we see our courageous and perfect champion, the Lord Jesus, amazed and sorrowful and startled by the glimpse of the wrath that he is about to bear for all of his people as he anticipates the agonies of the cross, as he anticipates the darkness and being utterly cast off as one who has no favor in your eyes because he hung there for our sakes and our stead. Father, we are the ones who deserve the outer darkness. We are the ones who deserve the agonies of deep separation and punishment and wrath because of our sins. Your Son is your beloved Son. He is and was the King of Heaven, the Prince of Glory, and yet He condescended to come to this earth taking the form of a servant, the form of a slave, that He might die and give His life a ransom for many. He willingly became poor for us that we might become rich spiritually in Him. Father, we pray that You would warm our hearts as we see divine love in this passage. As we see the heart of the Gospel in Christ becoming a curse for us. Draw near to Your people, we pray. We pray that You would minister to those who are strangers to Your grace. Those who do not know Christ, we ask that You would awaken, awaken their hearts and their minds to the reality of Your righteous judgment towards sin. And cause them to come to Christ as the only safety and shelter for their souls. Father, be merciful for Your name's sake. Show Yourself powerful to save in our weakness. We pray that You would be glorified for Your mercy. That we would behold both the kindness and the severity of God as we think of Your judgment and Your mercy towards those that You have chosen to have mercy upon. Send Your Holy Spirit. Illumine our hearts. Warm our affections for Christ. Renew our zeal to serve Him. We pray that You would forgive us of our many transgressions. All of us who are Your people will not hesitate to admit, Father, and confess that we have sinned even against such great love. We thank You that Your love for us is an eternal love. That Your love is not hindered by our sin. But that Your grace in Christ is conquering our sin and will present us before Yourself holy and blameless. 
Thank you for the hope of the gospel. We pray that we would rejoice this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's when we come to passages like the one in front of us (coughs) that we need to realize how small and insignificant our grasp of these divine mysteries is. And it's vital that we come to passages like these realizing that we come standing upon holy ground, that we come gazing into mystery, realizing that as we see the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out His soul to His Father, that we are in our grasp, grasping but the fringes of the depths of the mystery. And that even our greatest praise and our highest thoughts about these divine mysteries, they are but a weak praise. And our deepest thoughts are but shallow thoughts in terms of describing and grasping what is happening here. And so, the best thing for us to do is to sit humbly at the feet of the Scriptures, to hear the Word of God, and as we do, to pray that the Spirit would blow upon our hearts and He would grant us to say that though we do not and cannot comprehend, yet we believe and we worship. This morning I want to focus on what is happening here with this cup between the Lord Jesus and His Father and the cup that the Son is about to drink in our behalf. I won't focus this morning on the disciples and the lesson there in terms of their watchfulness. I want to focus simply upon this cup that our Lord Jesus was preparing to drink for us. And I have three main points that I want to draw out of this passage and then we'll turn at the close to application. And so if it helps you to take notes, there are three main sections in which I'll deal with the passage under, and then we'll turn to application as we close. Number one, point number one, is the contents of this cup. What is this cup that the Lord Jesus is agonizing over that He is about to drink? This whole passage revolves around the idea of this cup. Three times we're told that Jesus prays to His Father with these same words. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Now the question is, what cup is He describing? And Jesus is obviously picking up on a very clear theme in the Old Testament. There are two primary cups described in the Old Testament. The first is the cup of God's blessing for His people. So for instance, Psalm 23, verse 5, You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Speaks of the overflowing kindness and goodness of God towards those that He does not deal with according to their sins. But the second cup is a dark cup. It is the cup of God's wrath and fury. This cup that Jesus is peering into in the Garden of Gethsemane is, as one Puritan said, it is a cup filled with the unfathomable depths of hell itself. This is a cup of divine wrath 
earned not by Jesus Himself, but by sinners. Earned by His people for our sins, being brought, as it were, to the lips of the Lord Jesus to taste a foretaste of what He was about to experience full strength. Now, there are at least four ways. There are more, but there are four that I want to bring out. Four terrifying ways the Bible describes the cup of God's wrath. And Christian, it is so important if we are to adore Christ for His love for His people, it is important that we grow in our appreciation and our understanding of the terrors that are in this cup. Four things that the Bible says about this cup that Jesus is about to drink. Number one, it is the cup of God's wrath. Or other words that are used for it are the cup of God's fury. The cup of God's anger. This is very important that we make this, highlight this and make it very plain because this seems to be the forgotten attribute of God in our day. That God is a God of justice and vengeance and wrath towards wrongdoers and evildoers. And there are many who have painted for themselves a God of their own imagination that God is just a tame and docile God who winks at sin. And a God who will and must forgive me because that is His job. But my friend, if that's you, if that's true, if God is not a God of justice and if He does not demand payment and punishment for sin, then God, Christ died in vain and God cruelly put His Son to death for no reason. The Bible teaches us, on the other hand, that God is furious with sinners. That God is dangerous to sinners. That it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because our God is a consuming fire. Isaiah 51, verse 17, Isaiah says, Awake and stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Or Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. And it is fully mixed. And He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. My unbelieving friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, no matter what your background, whether you're a professing Christian but your life shows that you're living in a hypocritical manner to that, or whether you're someone who outrightly rejects the Gospel, I want to say this to you from the Word of God. It is one of the aspects of the deceitfulness of sin that causes us to think far too comfortable and consoling thoughts about the wrath of God. You cannot trust your own heart and what it tells you about what God is like. Because ever since the fall, we have been recreating God in our own image to reflect what we want Him to be rather than who He truly is. And 
hear the Word of God that just as we cannot begin to fathom the glories of heaven, so we cannot begin to fathom the terrors of hell and the judgment of God. We are given pictures in the Scripture of torment. We are told that the judgment of God is an eternal place of conscious torment where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. And yet, those things are but pictures. They are devices that the Scriptures use to describe for us something of the horrible agonies of what it looks like to fall under divine justice and the punishment of God Almighty. It is wrath so great That according to Revelation 6.16, when He who sits on the throne, the Lamb of God, returns in judgment, sinners will cry out and ask the mountains to fall upon them in order to hide them from the wrath of Him who sits upon the throne. It is, first and foremost, this cup, the cup of God's wrath for sin. Secondly, second thing about this cup, is that it is a cup poured full strength. Full strength. Revelation 14, verse 10, speaking of those who will come under the judgment of God, John writes, He Himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of His indignation. What that means, Christian is that this cup that Jesus is now peering into is not a cup that is watered down. It is not a cup that is diluted. We often see, we see this in the Scriptures, we see it in history, we've seen it in our own lives. We often see the reality that even in in the midst of God's judgment for sin, He often mingles that judgment with mercy. And while with the one hand He takes away, yet He often gives with the other. That is not true of this cup with Christ. Mercy and justice cannot co-mingle in this cup. Because if Christ's cup of justice is mixed or mingled or diluted with even the slightest bit of mercy... If there is but one sin that remains undrunk by Christ, then that means that our cup of mercy must likewise be mixed with God's justice. The only way for sinners to receive a pure cup of mercy from God means that Christ's cup had to be filled with pure justice. That brings us to the third thing. This cup, thirdly, is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. We see that both from the Lord Jesus' response, which we'll speak about in a moment here, but also from the Old Testament Scriptures. For instance, Psalm 60, verse 3, says, You have shown Your people hard things. You have made us to drink the wine of confusion. Literally could be translated, you have caused us to drink the wine of staggering. 
And it's a picture of God overwhelming sinners with his wrath. Just as a man is overtaken by strong drink and he doesn't know which way is up or down, so too God's wrath will overtake sinners with overwhelming wrath. And that, that is what the Lord Jesus is beginning to feel the weight of in the Garden of Gethsemane. As He sweats great drops of blood, as His soul is weighed down, Gethsemane literally means olive press. And it's appropriately here in this place that he's beginning to be pressed under the weight of God's overwhelming judgment. Fourthly, this cup is unavoidable. This cup is unavoidable. Jeremiah 25, verse 28. One of Jeremiah's messages to the wayward people of Israel. And God gives Jeremiah a message to make sure that Israel knows that their judgment is inevitable. And God says to Jeremiah in verse 20, of chapter 25, verse 28, God says, and it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. Brothers and sisters, my friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, there are far too many people in our day who are playing the dangerous game of eternal Russian roulette with the judgment of God. And they tell themselves and they convince themselves the wrath of God will not come for me. Somehow, I know what the Bible says, but somehow I know that it will be different in my case. And that when it comes to be my turn to stand before God in judgment, I will escape the wrath of God. My friend, that is an idolatrous view of God. That, that is a view of God that is made up by people who do not know God. God is a God of love, but He is also a God who is holy, holy, holy. And a God who is just. And He has demonstrated His love in one way to sinners. And that is by His giving this cup of wrath to His Son to drink for sinners. But justice, make no, have no doubt about it, justice is unavoidable. The wrath of God will be satisfied either in Christ for those who trust Christ or it will be satisfied upon every single sinner who refuses to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbeliever, hear me. Let this cup of God's wrath that we see here in this garden do its work deeply within your hearts. I pray that as you are forced to reckon and to think upon the reality of God's coming judgment, that it causes you to tremble 
Because if you are at this present moment a stranger to the Gospel, and God is your enemy, and Christ is your enemy, and you are still under your sins, and you do not have the shelter of Christ, the only right response is to tremble. Because the wrath of God is a fearful thing. A terrifying thing. And how gracious it is of God to stir us up with fear so that we might then flee to Christ who is the remedy. Right? Amazing grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And it was grace my fears relieved. My friend, God has not stuttered. He has not whispered about this. There is an ocean of wrath stored up. And the only dam that is holding it back at this present moment is the kindness and goodness of God towards you. But there is coming a day in which it will break forth. And it will come for you. And the only way to escape in safety is to come into the ark who is Christ. To be pardoned for your sin and to be saved from the wrath of God. That's the first thing is the contents of this cup. That brings us secondly to notice how dreadful this cup was to Christ. How dreadful this cup was to Christ. We see even more plainly how dreadful this cup was, not only by what the Scriptures say about this cup, but by the reaction that it brings about from the Lord Jesus Christ. Realize, this is not a weak man staggering. This is the Lord of glory trembling at the cup. Verse 33, it says, He took with Him Peter and James and John. And the New King James says, He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, there's a translation issue that I want to I just at least give my opinion on and hopefully clear up. And I don't mention this simply to trifle, but because it does have significant bearing on what's happening here as Jesus ponders this cup. This, that word that you probably have in your translation as troubled, I think should actually be translated, he began to be greatly amazed or startled, alarmed. That, that's how older translations put it. The King James put, he began to be sore amazed. The ASV said he began to be greatly amazed. And a couple of reasons for that is that first of all, that's the basic meaning of the word that's used here. But more than that, in the other three places where Mark uses this word, it uh, uh, communicates the idea of amazement or alarm. For instance, at the very end of Mark's Gospel... In chapter 16, verse 5 and 6, it's used two times there, it's when the women run to the the tomb where they fully expect to see the Lord Jesus 
And they see the stone rolled away and they go into this empty tomb and they see sitting there in the tomb a young man who is sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And it says when the women saw him, when they saw the angel, they were the same word that's used here. Now ask yourself, were the women sorrowful when they saw the angel? No, they were alarmed. They were surprised when they saw the angel. They were amazed at the sight. And so too, here in Gethsemane, Jesus, as He peers into this cup, He begins to be amazed because of what has come into His, come into his view. What is happening here in Gethsemane is God the Father in a way that Jesus had never experienced until this point, God the Father is impressing upon Jesus' human nature and understanding extraordinarily terrible views of the cup that awaits Him. So that He begins to be overcome with terrified amazement. And to be sure, this is not the first time that Jesus has thought about this cup. John chapter 2, we saw that he already knew at the beginning of his ministry that you will destroy this temple and I will raise it up after three days. He's spoken to his disciples already about the baptism that he would undergo. Christ lived, lived his whole life in the consciousness and awareness that the cross was the end and the goal. But on this night, the night of His betrayal, He's given an extraordinary sight of it. And brothers and sisters, this is one of those places where we need to admit that words fail us to properly express or comprehend what is happening here and what Jesus experienced. We can try to describe the agonies of hell We can try to find adequate language that in some sense does justice. But ultimately, as fallen and finite creatures, we can only comprehend the agonies of Gethsemane as much as it is possible for finite creatures to comprehend it. Christian, we must never diminish Gethsemane by pretending that this is something that we can relate to. You hear that sometimes. People say, this is, my, this is my Gethsemane. This is my time, my season of agony. Gethsemane is wholly unique for Jesus to bear and Jesus alone is able to bear it. It's true that Christians, we have crosses to bear. But they are crosses of an entirely different nature. Our crosses are not the unmitigated wrath of God. Our crosses are given to us as uh, emblems of love from a loving Father who has poured out our wrath upon His Son. Jonathan Edwards said about this text, he said, Christ had at this moment a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was about to be cast. 
He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. And Christian, we need to be clear here. The agonies of Christ, as he thinks about the cross, as he thinks about what is coming to him and what is in store for him the next day, his alarm here is not primarily caused by the thought of the physical pain and the physical agonies that he would undergo. As agonizing as his physical agony was and would be. Indeed, if his physical sufferings were the primary cause of his alarm here, we might even say that he's not handling the thought of his own death as well as others have handled it. After all, there have been countless saints who have died horrible deaths, painful deaths, who have faced their martyrdom with a measure of peace. And yet, what we have here in the Garden of Gethsemane is we have the God-man utterly undone. Trembling. Sweating great drops of blood. Why? It's because our Lord Jesus is beginning to feel what it means for Him to be made a curse for His people. He is beginning to see what it entails and what it will be for Him who knew no sin to be made sin in our behalf so that we might become in Him the righteousness of God. He's experiencing being given over without mercy to God's fury. And my unbelieving friend, hear me again. Physical death, physical agony certainly is no one's friend. But the eternal spiritual death that follows physical death for everyone outside of Christ is beyond words and is beyond comparison. The spiritual agony of spiritual death for everyone who dies outside of Christ is so unspeakably horrible that it would sound like heaven to the person who is in hell to die but a thousand physical deaths if that's all they have to bear to pay the penalty for the wrath of God. That's the second thing. How... How horrible this cup was to Christ and His trembling response. But that brings us to the third point. Why did the Father show this cup to the Son before the cross? Why did the Father reveal this cup to the Son before the cross of Calvary? Why this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus agonizes in His soul I want to give you three reasons. Number one, the first answer to that question of why the Father revealed this cup to the Son in the garden is that this is the final stage of the Son learning, his, learning obedience to His Father. This is the final stage of Christ learning obedience to His Father. 
Now, when we say that, obviously we're, we're mimicking, we're using biblical language, but it can raise questions. Obviously, Jesus in his divine nature has no room for improvement. But his humanity did grow in its obedience. And when we say that, we don't mean that Jesus ever grew from a state of disobedience to obedience. But rather, in his humanity, he grew from a place of untested and immature obedience to a place of tested and mature obedience. Right? We understand that when we teach our children. The goal when they're you know, 18 is that they would be at this level of math. But we know that when they're four, we don't just jump in at calculus. But we start with the building blocks and addition and things like that. So also, Jesus' whole life has been a growing and a perfecting of His resolve to do the will of His Father. All of which was preparing Him for this final act of obedience to His Father's will. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8. The author to the Hebrews reflects on this scene in the garden. Speaking of Christ, says, "...who in the days of His flesh..." when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Gethsemane, the foretaste of Calvary, is the final forging of the Savior's resolve to do the will of His Father. Where the will of the Savior and His allegiance to His Father is confirmed. And He is now qualified to be our righteous substitute. Right? This threefold wrestling with His Father in prayer of praying three times to his, far, uh, to his Father and being sorrowful at what obedience means and yet in the end declaring, yet not what I will, but Your will be done. This is the Father saying to the Son, My Son, the final test of obedience has come. And it is the Son declaring to His Father, Father, here I am. I have come to do Your will. Even to the uttermost. And in those words, Your will be done. Christian, we are witnessing the single greatest act of obedience that has ever been performed. Never has there been and never will there be another task given to a man by God that required more of the man than this task. This required everything of the Lord Jesus. Romans 5.18 Comparing Adam and Christ. Paul says, Therefore, as through one man's offense... Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one, one man's righteous act, singular, 
Through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification. You think about Adam and Christ. Adam was placed placed in a lush garden. He had everything given to him. He had his wife by his side, and he had only one prohibition given to him from God. And he refuses to forgo that one thing, and he plunges us into ruin. And here, Christ now, the second Adam, finds himself in a very different garden Alone, his disciples can't even stay awake and pray with him and for him. And Christ chooses to forego everything in order to regain the paradise that was lost by Adam. Christian, Gethsemane, as it leads to the cross, is important for a number of reasons. As it it relates to the obedience of Christ for our salvation. Let me give you a couple. This scene, as Jesus wrestles with what lies ahead, and as He still resolves, yes, Father, Your will be done, not mine. This is the basis of our redemption. You think about all of Jesus' obedience up to this point, as glorious as it was, Without this final act of obedience, and if he had just said, Father, I've gone far enough, but I cannot go through with this, all of that would have been for nothing. Everything hinged on Jesus not just doing most of the Father's work, but finishing the work that the Father gave to him. So that he could say on the cross, It is finished. This is the basis of the sinner's justification. If Jesus doesn't willfully go forward and embrace the cross, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no active obedience of Christ to be imputed to His people. But secondly, this scene is important because not only is it the basis of our justification, it's the basis of our sanctification. The Father here is qualifying Christ to be our faithful and merciful high priest who can give grace to His people. You think about it, Christian. Your only hope for being perfected in holiness is the fact that Christ Himself was perfected in holiness. Your only hope for overcoming sin and the world is that Christ overcame sin and the world even to the point of death. We need a Savior who can say like Christ says in John 17, 19, in His high priestly prayer, He says to His Father, Father, for their sakes I sanctify Myself so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. We can be sanctified by Christ only because Christ Himself has been sanctified even to the uttermost. That's the first answer of why the Father revealed this cup to His Son. Secondly, 
Second answer for why the Father revealed this cup to His Son before the cross is that it shows that the Son's obedience was a perfectly informed and willing obedience. The Father reveals the agonies of the cross in Gethsemane so that the Son would go forth willingly with full knowledge of what lies ahead. Jonathan Edwards put it like this, again commenting on this passage. He said, if Christ had plunged Himself into those dreadful sufferings without being fully sensible beforehand of their bitterness and dreadfulness, He would have done what He did not know. As man, He would have plunged Himself into sufferings of which He was ignorant and so would have acted blindfold. And of course, His taking upon Him these sufferings could not have been so fully His own act. Let me give you an analogy of what Edwards is saying. Let's say a man agrees to take on the debt of another man without realizing the amount of debt that he's signing up for. Right? So he thinks that he's doing a noble thing. I'm going to step in and this man owes $1,000. I'm going to take his debt upon myself and discharge the debt. And then, suddenly, that man realizes that that debt he thought he owed was actually much greater. What would we say about that man's willingness to be a Savior? We would say he was willing to be a Savior in part, but that he got himself into something he didn't realize what it was actually going to cost him, and then he had to fulfill his obligation merely out of duty because he was ignorant, not willfully. That is not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. By seeing the terrors of Calvary beforehand and having full knowledge of the sacrifice that was required to purchase His people, His obedience is shown to flow from perfect, informed, and uncoerced love. His obedience is a knowledgeable and voluntary obedience. Isaiah prophesied of Christ in Isaiah 53 that as a sheep is silent before its shearers, so the suffering servant opened not his mouth. And that is true. Christ was silent as He was led to the slaughter, but it was not the silence of an ignorant sheep who did not know what was coming, but rather it was He Himself allowing Himself to be led to the slaughter willingly, without protest and without resistance. Thirdly, just briefly, and then we'll turn to application. Third reason why the Father showed Christ this cup before Calvary is so that we as the church would see the infinite love of Christ for the church. A major part of what's going on in Gethsemane as we see the agonies of Christ and yet His resolve to continue to do the will of the Father for our salvation is so that we, the church, would see 
the infinite measure of love which is in Christ's heart. What is it that caused Christ to persevere? What is it that caused him to pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done? The answer is the infinite divine love that is in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for his sheep. Even at this moment, the the greatest moment of sorrow in the Lord Jesus' life, there was still more love in Christ's heart for us than there was revulsion for this cup. Gethsemane is the love of Christ made manifest for us. That Christ seeing the cup would still tread on and willingly drink this cup for me. And Gethsemane is at the same time the display of the Father's love for us in that the Father seeing what this cup did to the Son, the Father did not take the cup away and say, no, my Son. But rather, Father and Son, knowing the cost, the Father gives the cup to His Son and the Son willingly takes it to His lips. That's love. Not love because we are lovely, but love because it was simply God's good pleasure to love those who were unlovely. That as Christ peers into this cup, every Christian can look at this scene and realize my name is in that cup. My name, when he prayed for those who would believe his word, in John 17, my name was in his heart. And the Christian, when he asks the question, why, the farthest we can trace it back is the ocean of divine love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had for the church. Christian, this is the greatest consolation for the downcast soul. This is the greatest consolation for the soul that doubts the love of God. If you doubt the love of God, where do you look? You don't look to your heart. You look at things like Gethsemane, which is the most concrete proof that God loves His people. There is no greater demonstration of the love of God than Gethsemane and the cross. Romans 5.8 To see Christ in anguish resolve taking this cup, not in order to win over the Father to love us, but rather to bring near to us the love that the Father has had for us. Thomas Goodwin said, That Christ adds not one drop of love to God's heart, but rather Christ simply draws it out to us and brings it near. And all of it was done for you, Christian. Christ, clothed in flesh, like ours, that He might tend to our needs. The love of God the Father giving this cup of poison to His Son 
and Christ, our cupbearer, taking this poison for us so that we would live. That brings us to our application as we close. How does this text apply to us? I have four things just briefly that I want to bring out for us. Four applications. Number one, I want to exhort you here if you're an unbeliever. If you're outside of Christ, perhaps you're on the fence, you're not sure about the Gospel, perhaps you're an outright enemy of the Gospel. Listen to me. Christ says that whoever is not for me is against me. And it's not enough simply to be on the fence or to be unsure. The only place to be safe is by closing by faith with Christ. Listen to me, unbeliever. Let both the terrors of the wrath of God and the wooings of the love of God in the Gospel do their work in your soul. I plead with you, don't stop up your ears and let this sermon, just like every other sermon, fall upon bad and hard soil. You ought to allow the horrors of the cup of God's wrath that He has for you, you ought to allow it to cause you to tremble. You should be anxious for your soul and tremble to die. Because wrath is fast approaching. And right now, if I remain outside of Christ, I am naked before God and without shelter. Listen to me, that's good. And I pray that God is, as it were, tearing up the soil of your heart with tremblings at God's wrath and judgment. But hear me, that's not enough. James tells us that even demons shudder at the thought of their destruction, and yet they are not saved. There has never been a sinner who went to heaven simply because he was terrified of hell. It's good to be terrified of hell. But as I think it was Spurgeon said, to merely fear hell does not mean that one loves God. It simply means that one regrets that God is just. You can hate hell without loving Christ. That's true of everyone right now who's already in hell. They don't want Christ, but that doesn't mean that they don't want out of hell. You must, listen to me, be a sinner not only shaken by the thundering of God's wrath, but your heart must also by the Holy Spirit be melted with grief that I have sinned against such a good God. You need a godly sorrow and a Godward repentance. A heart that doesn't just fear punishment, but that realizes, I have sinned against a good and gracious God. And the greatest expression of that loving God in that He gave His Son. Sinner, you you need to be born again and be given a heart that is inflamed with affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
a heart that would give up everything this world has to offer in order to possess Him. And you need a heart that even if it had everything else in this world, but it didn't have Christ, you would consider yourself to be very poor. Christ is the one who brings us to heaven. Not merely the fear of judgment. And sinner, you need to come to Christ right now in your heart by faith. Receive His offer of pardon and mercy. Right now, God genuinely and sincerely offers to every sinner in this world that if you will but lay down your arms of rebellion, if you will humble yourself, if you will realize that inside of yourself there is nothing but what damns you and condemns you, but that in Christ there is an ocean of righteousness and purity and holiness, God says to you right now, sinner, if all you feel right now is your need of Christ, that is the only thing that Christ requires of you. You don't have to. In fact, you dare not bring anything in your hand as a trophy to give to God. But rather, you let go of everything that your self-righteous soul might want to cling to and you realize that that is rubbish and nothing. And it is simply to the cross of Christ that I cling. Sinner, God promises you if you do that, you will be saved from the wrath that is to come. You will be spared this cup. And so come to Christ. Trust Christ. Secondly, second application. Christian, I want to speak to you and your sanctification. This is an application for the Christian life and how we relate to God. The greatest incentive, not the only incentive, but the greatest incentive we have against sinning as a Christian is not the wrath of God, but the beauty of Christ's merciful heart for His people. There's a place for the rod in the Christian life, and God gives threatenings to His people, there's no doubt. Paul, at times, threatens with the rod. But Paul could find no greater incentive to encourage Christians to holiness and to pursue obedience to Christ than he did in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. The cross of Christ and the love of Christ demonstrated in the agonies of Gethsemane is the greatest example of the mercies of God we have. Philippians 2 verse 1, if there is any consolation in Christ and comfort of love, fulfill my joy by having the same mind. Gethsemane and the cross that follows is the Mount Everest of the mercies of God. And so Christian, let me ask you this. Do you pursue holiness because in Christ dwells the beauty of holiness and you desire to experience more of the joys of knowing Him? 
Or I'll ask it another way. Think, think upon your relationship to God. Do you obey God more as a slave master than you do as a father? Are you prone to think of Christ as a hard taskmaster or as one who is full of pity and compassion for his brothers? Christ proves to us at Gethsemane how much he hates sin and how much he hates the sin that is in his people such that at great cost to himself he undertook for us so that each and every one of his people would enjoy His glory with sinless hearts. And our first response to sin in our own hearts ought not to just be a bare fear of punishment, but a godly grief of, oh, that I would never ever offend such a loving Christ again. That's something that changes in the new birth. Where we're given new affections and new taste buds in our hearts for the beauties of Christ and the joys of holiness because God is holy. Because holiness is good. And our pursuit of sanctification is learning to drink deeper and deeper at that fountain. Coming again and again to Christ who is that fountain of living water. Thirdly, I want to speak to the backsliding Christian. The wayward Christian. And as I speak to you, I don't know who you are, but God knows. And as I look out upon a group of this size... If the Scriptures tell us anything and if experience tells us anything, we would be naive to think that it is not possible that there is some of you who are living hypocritical lives. And when I say that, I don't know. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. It may be that you're a backslidden Christian. And you just, because of the overwhelming temptations of the devil and growing lax in your watchfulness, you've slipped into a, a season of laziness lethargy, you've let off watching, I want to say this to you. Such is the love of Christ shown to us at Gethsemane and in the cross. If that's you and you're backslidden, let the love of Christ draw you with its cords of love back to the place of obedience and genuine service to Christ. How can you, the one who professes to love Christ, willfully pour salt upon the wounds of Christ? How can we so lightly trifle with grace? How can we sing in one moment that it was my sin that held Him there, and then the next moment just run headlong into sin? Paul says that if that's us, we should be concerned in Romans 6. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? And he says, may it never be, for how can we who have died to sin still live in it? That's not the disposition of the genuine believer. 
that we just sin with impunity, that we can think about the cross of Christ and we have no pangs of conscience when we sin against such love. God's purpose in Christ is that He would have a holy people for His own possession. And if there is no desire for holiness, can, there, can it be said that in such a one dwells the Spirit of Christ? Christian, listen to me. If that's you, to some degree, to some extent, the warnings of God, the warning passages, should cause you to shudder at the thought that am I by sinning like this proving myself to be not a genuine Christian? That, that's not a bad thing for the Christian to ask when he's living in sin. In fact, that's a gracious thing that God often works to, to wake us up with fear that I don't want to prove myself to be false. And God uses that to keep His own on the way of holiness and the path of holiness. So listen to me, whoever you are. May the Spirit awaken you to see that I've lost my first love. I don't know how I got here. But as I look back a year ago and where I am today, I see I've drifted from Christ. And I've drifted from the things of God. And I, I fear where I am going. And may the Spirit of God use that in your own heart to draw you by the cords of love back to the safety of walking in sincerity with Christ and serving Christ with a sincere, single-minded heart. Lastly, an encouragement to the suffering. An encouragement to the suffering Christian. Christian, know this. That in all your miseries, every single misery, though all human comforters may fail you, you have a friend who will pity and help and assist you. Christ, as He sits right now enthroned in heaven, has the same gracious, generous, patient heart towards sinners just as He did on earth. Sometimes Christians are tempted to think that because Christ has now ascended in glory, that He's lost some of the relatability to sinners on earth. And it's not true. Christ's heart is just as full as compassion. And it is just as relatable and just as willing to give grace to those who are in need of mercy. Romans 5.10 for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Suffering Christian, let the Word of God comfort your soul. The One who in infinite love spilled His blood for you, now in infinite love prays for you and stands as an ever-present help for you. Right? That's how Paul argues at the end of Romans 8, when he says, I'm convinced that nothing in all creation, nor height, nor depth, nor the sword, nor famine, nor nakedness, even if we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered all the day long, he says, nothing will separate us. And he says, because it is Christ who has died... 
And then it's almost as though Paul interrupts himself because he doesn't want to leave it there for too long. And he says, but more than that, who was raised? And who now sits at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. Emphasizing that if God's love was such for us that while we were enemies, Christ died for us, how much more shall His resurrection life and ministry save us to the uttermost? And so Christian, go to Him for grace. Apply to Him for grace. It's true, every trial that we face requires at that moment more grace than we have yet to receive. And yet, that's the whole point is that God sends them to us so that we would learn to again draw from Christ. That yes, I need more grace than I presently have, but I don't need more grace than can be found in Christ. And so, suffering Christian, go to Christ with your weakness. Go to Him with your lack. Go to Him with your suffering. He cannot be exhausted because His grace is inexhaustible. He cannot fail to graciously give you all things. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray as we come now to celebrate the Lord's table together that Christ would draw near to our hearts. Father, we pray that we would not only have more love for Christ, but that we would comprehend more of the love that Christ has for us. We know, Father, that it's, it's wrong of us to doubt the love of God. And yet that's what we're so often tempted to do. We forget the great promises and the foundations Your Word give us. We pray that You would forgive us and that You would warm our hearts with a knowledge of Your love that has no beginning and will have no end. That You'd remind us of Your love, which is the foundation for our love in return. Father, we pray for any who are here who are unbelieving. Draw them to Christ. Have mercy upon them. Make them sensible and aware of the danger that they're in. And make them sensible and aware of the safety and the comfort that is found in your Son. That having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We pray that they would all know that same comfort and that same peace. Father, glorify Yourself in our midst. Be gracious to us this Lord's Day. We pray that we would make full use of it. That we would grow in Christ together. We pray that You'd use us, use one another as we speak the Word into one another's hearts. We pray that you would use each and every one of us as different members of the body. That you would use us to to nurture uh, our brother's soul and our sister's soul. Work in us by your spirit, that which is pleasing in your sight, we pray. We ask that you would draw near to us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.